Today, we're talking about generative AI and leadership with Paul Doherty, the global chief executive for Accenture Technology. My guest co-host is Q. Harrison Terry, the chief growth officer for the Mark Cuban companies. Thanks for having me, Mike, and it's exciting to be able to talk with Paul on AI today. Paul, why don't we begin by asking you to tell us about your work as the chief executive for technology at Accenture? Yeah, you know, Accenture is a, a large organization. We're about 740,000 people, over $60 billion in, in revenue. And uh, we help companies do amazing things with technology. You know, that's what we're all about. Do you want to give us, uh, to start, a uh, just kind of a brief overview of generative AI? I think everybody in the audience knows what it is, but in the context of business and in our world, where does it fit today? Talk about generative AI, you have to talk about AI first. And AI has been around for a long time, and uh, all of us use AI continuously. You know, anybody, you know, the, uh, those of you know, us, the three of us talking here, and anybody listening has used AI dozens, if not hundreds, of times today. So it's because you know, AI has become a pervasive part of our life through the advances in machine learning and deep learning and such that have come before. And uh, AI, as I'm sure you know, most of the audience knows, it's an old field. It, the term was invented, I believe, in 1953 at a conference in Dartmouth, 70 years ago, and it's gone through a lot of iterations over the years. So uh, we, I like to think about three forms of AI, uh, diagnostic AI, which is using AI to diagnose things, often uh, you know, deep learning and the like to look at, uh, you know, for example, using machine vision to look for manufacturing defects, you know, the thing we do commonly or to unlock our phones, you know, as we do, uh, as we do every, every uh, few minutes of every day or assisted driving features in cars. And then there's, that's diagnostic. And then there's predictive AI. Uh, such as AI we use to do retail forecasting for companies, often you know, machine learning and optimization models. Those are well-established techniques. Uh, we have you know, lots of people doing that work for lots of clients around the world, and many, many companies use it. Generative AI now is the new thing on the scene, and it really is a massive breakthrough, probably the biggest breakthrough in AI to date. Uh, and uh, what we're really talking about with generative AI is foundation models, which are really powerful models that can be reused in uh, across many different use cases. That's why they're called foundation models. Large language models are, are a type of foundation models that, that really uh, understand language and have mastered, have allowed us to really master language through artificial intelligence. And then the transformer technology added on top of that allows us to, to generate things. That's why you know, GPT is generative pre-trained transformer. It's the it's these large uh, models that then have uh, uh, transformer technologies. They can create new sources of content. So that's really the breakthrough of generative AI models that are very powerful and can be reused rather than bespoke data science projects combined with foundation models, which have you know, tremendous reuse and power combined with this creative capability to produce language uh, content, uh, whether it be graphics, video, et cetera. And it really is um, really transformational in terms of what it allows us to do as, as individuals and what it allows companies to do. But we're at the very early stages still. Hey, Paul, one of the things that I want to talk to you about today is the whole concept of you thinking about this stuff, I mean, almost a decade ago in your book, Human uh, Plus Machine, re re Reimagining Work in the Age of AI. I don't, sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I did read it a while ago. And when I was looking back at that book, one of the things that you talked about was how AI would ultimately become the ultimate innovation uh, machine. And it's it's fascinating that it's 2023, um, a few um, almost five years later since you published that book. What's your take? Like that, it seems like you were. It seems like you're spot on. But what things happened in generative AI that you didn't envision or forecast um, back in 2018? I think the the premise and the all the precepts in Human Plus Machine uh, really uh, really have stood up. The, the, the test of time well, and the concepts we talked about, the human plus machine, and the idea that AI gives humans superpowers to do new things really has you know, stood the test of time. And we see generative AI as an even bigger step forward in terms of you know, the, the augmentation and enhancement of what it can do you know, for, for all of us in terms of uh, giving us you know, greater tools and productivity to do, you know, to do new things. Uh, I think the, the surprise, we did talk about you know, all this technology in that book and then our next book, uh, my co-author and I wrote Jim Wilson's my co-author, uh, which was called Radically Human. That was the second book. 
but it, it did the pace of the advance is what surprised us more so than the capability. We were anticipating that some of these uh, capabilities would come along. Uh, but with the uh, you know the pace of development of uh, the foundation models, the rapid growth uh, as um, in, in uh, you know the size and uh, complexity of the parameters and the weightings and everything, and uh, you know the breakthroughs that came about with that were probably the biggest surprise you know uh, Q in terms of what we saw. And then one last thing on that is when you talk about the timing and how like just fast everything is is coming together, it's it's fascinating to think that you know even OpenAI's ChatGPT is still relatively like nine to 10 months old as we stand today. Yeah. And then when we fast forward, I mean, like to just yesterday, Elon Musk announced XAI, which is another, you know, fascinating uh, AI company. As a business leader and executive, uh, how should I think about AI? I mean, it's happening fast, but does that mean I take, you know, the move fast and break things approach? Or should I wait and see where things settle um, without, but, 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 on the flip side of that, our organization might, you know, be behind. Um, how, how should I think of that? Our belief is that this is a this is a, a generative AI is a participant sport. You have to jump in and start using it and experience it, and uh, and do some experimentation. So we're encouraging you know companies to do that, and that's the, the approach we're taking in our in our own organization. And but it's also it's very early with the models that you just you just highlighted that with the uh, you know how young you know the G GPT and Chat GPT models are, and a lot of uh, a lot of companies still you know do not have you know have not reached GA you know general availability status of their models and products. So this is, is early and evolving. Uh, Elon Elon's company was announced recently, and there's new companies sprouting up continuously. And uh, so I think the key for for companies is is first. Uh, is first you look across your business and decide where it's applicable. Second is pick some use cases where you can you, you can jump in and experiment with the technology and manage some of the complexity and risk. And then uh, third, develop the, the the foundational capabilities that you need to then scale it faster. And those capabilities include technology capabilities like understanding the models. Uh, how do you you know the prompt engineering, the pre training, and other things that you might need to do, and how to in integrate these models back into your business, as well as the business skills of of uh, understanding how and where you apply it. How do you develop a business case for it? How much does it cost to do you know to apply these models? And uh, that's really those three steps, you know, looking looking across the landscape, experimenting and laying the foundation are what uh, what uh, we're helping a lot of companies do today. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out CXOTalk.com. Paul, you're describing this kind of open field of innovation that's going to be happening, but Everything around generative AI right now seems so ambiguous. The technology is changing. The implications for business are apparently amazing, but unclear. And so how should business leaders navigate this intense ambiguity? I think generative AI is just a new ingredient into the mix. Uh, we've been talking for a while, I've been talking for a while about the, the you know, exponential advance in technology uh, that we're that we're living in, and so organization. We've been talking for a while about organizations need to develop the ability to innovate and and, and uh, recognize and adapt technology faster. And the the three key technologies that are really, I think, will define companies' success in the next uh, several years and decade are cloud, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. And uh, those are th you know three themes. And I can talk more about the. We're talking about AI today. Happy to go to either those other directions as well, and. Um, you know, as you look at the AI piece of it, you know those those things build on each other. To success, be successful with AI, we're finding and companies are finding they need to get to the cloud. Those that are have an advanced foundation in the cloud are better prepared on how to utilize AI. You know, most of these models run in you know in, in the cloud, and you need to have your data foundation in place and have your data. You know, have the data to drive the AI models successfully. And a lot of organizations have struggled with this over the years. We did a recent survey and only 5 to 10% of companies really have maturity in terms of how they manage their data 
and the and the corresponding AI capabilities. So that means ninety percent have a long way to go. So start with the cloud. You know, you need to start with the cloud foundation and what you're looking at. You need to look at your data, the governance around your data and your metadata, and how you pull that together so that you can you know support you know AI in the right way. And then it's the you know the AI capability uh, and skills that you build on top of that. So it's a journey that we're on. But and it's going to continue. The generative AI is amazing, but it's not the last big breakthrough. And it's probably not the biggest breakthrough we'll see in technology as this exponential advance continues. So this is kind of the 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 the, the muscle so to speak, that organizations need to develop to continuously anticipate and have the flexibility in their systems, their architecture, their business and their business processes and their talent to you know, continue to adapt as technology advances. So from your perspective, AI is essentially another in, cha- in a chain of technologies that's not necessarily all that different from what's come before. What's different about AI, um, it, it is the latest in the chain, and these things all build on each other. Uh, and it's this combinatorial effect of the technologies coming together that really creates the power. Uh, but what, what's different about AI is it allows us to create more human-like capability. I can communicate with uh, with uh, large language models using natural language, uh, using voice interaction, et cetera. I can get output that's you know that uh, is easier for me to interpret. So uh, that's the powerful breakthrough with with uh, with generative AI. And the more you know, what I advocate is the more human like the technology, the more powerful and the more exciting it is for us. We shouldn't view it as a threat as technology acquires this capability it allows us to really you know to really leverage the technology and, and give us you know kind of superpowers is you know what we talked about in our book around um, giving us new capability. For example, I can. Uh, be a customer service rep, and rather than just what I know in my memory and from my my experience, I can understand. I can you know have at my fingertips every aspect of every technical manual on the product that I'm answering questions on. Uh, brought you know, brought to the forefront, prioritized that I can answer the customer's question the right way. This is the type of power you know that uh, that the technology has given us, and uh, you know just to you know to go into that a little further. When we look at the real impact of AI, well, cl- you know, cloud probably changed technology a lot and how we built technology and supported technology. AI is changing work and the way we work because of this capability. And one of this, the uh, research studies we did recently showed that 40% of working hours uh, across companies globally are impacted by generative AI, 40%. That doesn't mean 40% of jobs go away, far from it. We actually see it enhancing jobs and enhancing productivity and capabilities that people have in, in many ways, and you know, happy to go into that in more detail. Q. Harrison mentioned that your book was called Human Plus Machine, and we have an, a really interesting question from LinkedIn, and this is from Milena Z, and she says, how would you describe the significance of incorporating human values into the development of generative AI technology? It's incredibly important. Uh, it's if, if you don't have in your organization a, a really strong, responsible AI program, you're simply being irresponsible. And at the core of responsible AI is you know accounting for human values and uh, in the way that you do it, uh, responsible AI, in our view, is about it's about uh, uh, things like the you know accuracy and uh, uh, and uh, coming up with the right answers, avoiding the hallucination. It's about uh, the uh, ethical issues that cut that you need to think about in terms of how you're applying the AI. It's about bias and ensuring you that there's fair you know fair outcomes and fair uh, use of the technology. And um, and you know where in, in certain cases the transparency and explainability that you need. Around the technology, and uh, we we encourage every organization using AI to do is, is really, especially with the advance of generative AI. We've been talking about this for six years, but especially with generative AI, you need a responsible AI program in place. And if you can't inventory every use of AI in your company and understand the risk of it and know how you're mitigating those risks, then you're simply going to get yourself in trouble with uh, with improper uses of AI. And that's uh, that's what, the way we think about responsible AI. It's not just you know, mushy you know, values and principles, it's execution, operations, and compliance in terms of how you're uh, applying the technology. I mean, Paul, that's a great point. But the question I have is like, the theoretical version of that and the actual application of that oftentimes look entirely different. For example, if I'm in a company and let's say I'm experimenting with generative AI and it's just in our R&D department, and then we quickly realize that this could actually have some scale, um, 
we just apply it to a whole section, another sector of our company, or maybe we apply it to the whole company. Uh, at what point do I actually stop and, and say, okay, there's a legal component here. And oftentimes when we point to that direction, I mean, we're, that's the big debate in AI to, today. I mean, even at the congressional level is, you know, what do we do? How do we regulate this stuff? If I stop now, aren't I hindering my innovation? And if I'm in charge of innovation and uh, acceleration of technology, technological development within the company, what, like, I'm caught in a catch 22 if you, if you understand what I'm saying. I am not one of those that supports stopping and banning or pausing on the technology. I think it's about putting in place the right uh, framework and the right uh, guidelines so that you know what you're doing and can evaluate the risk of it. I would say not just at the end, but every step along the way. And before you even get started, you should do an assessment of the risk. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guidelines and, and ways you can do that. The EU, you know, EU is uh, is going through the stages of approval on the AI Act. They identify high risk, you know, different risk categories of AI. Uh, do, you know, does your team understand those, and are you assessing for any application of AI whether what risk category you're fitting into, and then how you uh, you know mitigate that or deal with that to make sure you're you're handling that? And that's just one example in respect of EU. There's also the White House guidelines. There's NIST and and other things that are that are out there, and there'll and there'll be more coming because of the interest in in kind of setting some guardrails around this, which I think is a good thing. But but I think I think that teams need to be trained, and organizations need to have tools in place. So that you see, so you are assessing, you know, the use of AI, and under, again, understand the, the risk of it, and make decisions accordingly. There, there's things we won't do, and things we've decided not to do. Uh, you know, you know uh, applications that we've uh, not pursued because of you know the, the risk profile of them, or we we did we felt it was not aligned with the uh, the right values, and that's a important consideration to build into your process. It, it can't just be after the fact. It's got to be you know as you're considering use cases and starting out. AI, it, it brings out either the best in people or the worst in people. And the latter component, when it brings out the worst in people, traditionally what I'm seeing is people will try to hinder the AI's abilities or uh, slow it down in fear of losing their job or um, seeing other calamities ensue within their industry. One of the questions I have for you is, how do we get better at communicating AI? Technology is neutral. Like Technology isn't good or bad. There's yeah, um, uh, in uh, in AI, it, it was generative AI fits in fits into that description. Generative AI isn't good or bad. It's exactly as you said, Q. It, it's how you use it, and it can be used for bad purposes. It can be used to spread misinformation at scale, deep fakes, and all sorts of things. Uh, but, but that's people using the technology badly. I think people. I think that's where what the, some of the communication we need to do around generative AI is that the thing we really need to be looking out for and preventing is bad uses of AI and people using AI in bad ways. We need to educate, you know, the broader, you know, the, the general population on what that means that they they can recognize and understand if something, you know, has been uh, you know, propagated and generated, you know, you know, artificially at scale using generative AI for some uh, illicit purpose, whatever it might be. So I, I think that's um, it's like there, there is a broad education that that uh, needs to happen there. We're doing a lot of work on that. We're working with a lot of uh, different uh, organizations on that, governments and uh, other bodies to you know to um, look at how we can better educate um, uh, you know the, the general population as well as business leaders and technologists and decision makers around using the technology in the right way. So I think that's an ongoing ongoing uh, ongoing effort that we'll all need to work together on. We have a bunch of questions that are stacking up on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I have to say, you guys in the audience, you are so intelligent, so smart and sophisticated, and your questions are absolutely great. And our next question comes from Florin Rotar. He is the chief technology officer at Avanade. And I have to say that I did a video with Florin years and years and years and years ago in Seattle. So Florin, it's great to see you pop up. And here's, here's Florin's question, and I think it gets right to the heart of some of the key issues. And he says, how will generative AI change the future of work? Can it also play a role to enable people to realize their full potential, to thrive and to grow, not just to drive Producti productivity, will it blur the lines between white color and blue color? And I'll just add to that, to me, this question is also getting to the point that Q Harrison just raised, which is generative AI 
brings out the, the best and brings out the worst in people. We talked in Human Plus Machine about the idea of no-collar jobs and uh, exactly what uh, Florin highlights of eliminating this distinction between uh, you know, kind of blue collar, white uh, white collar. As you look at it, I mean, think about it. Uh, a a hands on service technician. Think about a plumber or an electrician that now has access to large language models that that give them tremendous amounts of additional information and potential. It can give them tools to run their business more effectively. Maybe they can be a a service provider to others in their profession rather than just you know being uh, rather than just being you know the specialist uh, at the uh, the physical trade that they have. I think that's the blurring of capability that the, the AI allows. And think about a, a small business that now, or in any part of a, a larger business that wants to go international overnight, they can start communicating in dozens of languages, uh, you know, seamlessly and expanding their business. You know, it's these superpowers that are enabled that give people more capability, and that leads to a lot of you know new entrepreneurial activity and ideas. I mean, think of what GoDaddy did to the internet in creating a generation of entrepreneurs in a lot of different ways, or eBay market marketplaces and such. We're going to see that you know to the next you know to the next uh, exponential multiple with generative AI creating all these new possibilities of what people can do. So that's the kind of what what we see happening there. And to get more specific around it. Um, we, we see, you know, the new opportunities for jobs and the way generative AI impacts it falling into five categories. The first is advising. And this is kind of, you know, advisors or assistants or co-pilots to help people do their jobs more effectively. A large, for example, large European uh, service organization that we're working with, where we're using generative AI in their customer service organization to allow them to answer questions with a lot more accuracy and quality because they can, as I mentioned earlier, they can they can pull tremendous amounts of technical information together to answer customers' questions better, faster, and with higher quality. And they can cross-sell more effectively because they get the ideas and prompts and uh, support on, on how to cross-sell. That's you know advising. Creating is another whole cat is a second whole category, another category. Uh, a good example here is uh, work we're doing with um in a in the pharmaceutical industry where we're able to, in the drug discovery process and clinical trials process, create some of the regulatory and compliance documents they need to create. So that then gets reviewed at the final stage by humans in the loop, avoiding all the rote work and you know that a person would normally do and allowing them to apply their judgment and expertise in the final product. That's creative in addition to you know applying it in uh, marketing and other areas that I could talk about, which is super interesting right now. So that's the creating uh, side of it. There's automating where you can use generative AI to automate some of the transaction processing. An example here is a multinational bank. We're using generative AI in their in their back office processing to correlate, uh, read and correlate tens of thousands of emails that come in with transaction activity. Normally, people need to sort through all this to reconcile and uh, and do their you know their their, their uh, post trade processing more effectively. Again, you couldn't do this with other technology, you can do it with generative AI and you can make people's jobs that more productive and effective and you know, take out some of the, the drudgery. Uh, the fourth category that is protecting, which I think is super interesting, an example here is we're working with a large energy company on, an, on a safety application so that workers in real time can get all the information on what's happening, uh, real time conditions, weather conditions and other things in a, in a complex, uh, say, refinery. And um, and then combine that with the, all the information they need to know from safety procedures and manuals and and uh, regulation and such that they, they can they can operate in a more safe manner in real time. You know, you know again, couldn't do this all put all this together for generative AI. And then the final uh, use case we're seeing a lot is in technology itself, using AI and software development and technology development. I'm sure we'll find more examples <laughs> as we go. Those are five that are kind of standing out uh, right now, just to you know drill into you know some of the ways that it's transforming work in response to Florence's question. We've got another question coming in from Twitter from Chris Peterson. And the question is, one of the opportunities mentioned in Human Plus Machine was the AI explainer role. Is that even possible for something as complex as GPT-4 with billions of parameters and almost unlimited training data? In some industries, in some problems, if you can't explain it, you can't do it. That's part of that screening that I talked about earlier with responsible AI. If you have a kind of a regulatory or ethical or business need to explain exactly how things ha something's happening, you need to use the right type of approach where you can do that. And you can't do that with some, to your point, with some of the the models that are there. But there's a lot of advance happening in explainability. There's ways to query the models to understand you know, how they're processing. There's uh, 
uh, areas like uh, uh, gender uh, GANs, gender adversarial networks, we can use in different ways to get some uh, uh, insight into how models are working and such. So there's a lot of different advances there, and, and there are, uh, you know, there's uh, new fields in addition new fields like prompt engineering that are cropping up because of generative AI. We're also seeing, you know, demands in the market for explainability engineers or explainability specialists who can bring that understanding in to help them, uh, you know, to help understand those. Uh, those kind of conditions, and the other the other thing that's sometimes important is that even if in, in some applications you don't necessarily need to explain exactly how you got the answer, you need to provide the transparency of what information you're using, what data you're using, and and the process itself. For, so you need to differentiate where do you really need to explain exactly all the math you did and how you did it, so to speak, and where do you just need to provide transparency into how you're doing it and show that you're using information such in the right way. And distinguishing that can you know can help organizations unlock some of the potential too. And we have another question from Wayne Anderson, and you can see we love taking questions from the audience, and and again the audience is amazing. So. So this is from Wayne Anderson on Twitter. And Wayne also has a question coming up on LinkedIn. So he's like sort of a multi-tenanted, multifaceted social media happening here. And, and Wayne says, what is the litmus test? Is there one, a question, set of questions that you use to quickly evaluate a client's place on the operational maturity journey for AI and ML? We have a maturity framework uh, we use, you know, to assess uh, for, for ourselves as well as uh, for our clients. And it, it um, you know, there's there's steps of, um, of maturity, uh, you know, that, uh, that you go through in, in assessing it. There's, there's uh, assessing, you know, talent and where you are with the, with the talent, um, and the expertise that you have in the organization, that's about the technology talent, as well as you know, the skills you have in the business and the kind of training programs that you have around that. Uh, there's assessing the data readiness uh, that, for it, you know, in terms of, as we talked about earlier, your data maturity and the uh, maturity of your platforms, uh, data platforms to support what you need to do. There's, um, uh, the, there's then the uh, maturity of... Um, how you want to use, how you need to use the models and your, your sophistication around that. And that depends on the strategy that you have. Is your strategy to use, uh, uh, use, you know, proprietary, you know, pre-trained public, you know, available models, or is your strategy to do some of your own pre-training or customization using your own data that requires far different operational skills. And therefore you, know, you need to evaluate where you are on that, uh, on that spectrum. And then there's the, uh, the operate, the operational skills, around it so how do you uh, how do you put the uh, AI in place and how do you monitor it on an ongoing basis uh, for the right outcomes and then finally the responsible AI dimension of it so those are kind of the dimensions there's more underneath that uh, but um, there's a, there's a process that we use to go to, to to go through it I think that's every organization having an understanding of that and having a way to evaluate their maturity is uh, is important to, to know how you're making progress Wayne actually did ask another question on LinkedIn I'm looking at it right here. And he talks about the security and the risk of AI is not something that is entirely a technical solution. A lot of it is in the humans and the innovation backslash development processes. And what formal steps do you need to be in order for that innovation to provide the kind of guide rails and talking points on the future of machine learning projects? So the way I the way I interpret that is, you know, we've got a lot of groups working together. Uh, how do you how do you make sure they're all working and and their energies are going the right way, the right direction? We think the right approach to use is a center of excellence kind of approach, given that the state of the technology where you create a center of excellence, you know, you have to you know centralize in your organization that has those capabilities in it. That's what we've done for ourselves and we're helping a lot of our clients do. In fact, we have something called the COE in a box that we're using to help clients set up these kind of capabilities. It requires the technology capability, the business capability, the legal, you know, cap you know, the legal teams and cap capability, legal and commercial. Uh and um uh, uh, and you know, talent, you know, kind of you know, talent, uh, uh, HR kind of capability around it. So you need to bring all that, uh, all that together. Uh, so the center of excellence, where you can have that capability assembled, you have representatives from all those different groups in your organization, is important. You can federate some of the experimentation then, but it's really important to bring it together. Security is a great angle. I, I don't know if that was the primary thrust of that question. 
But uh, there's a lot of implications uh, on security from generative AI, both in terms of new security challenges, as well as uh, considerations about data privacy, ground grounding of models, use of sovereign data, depending on the jurisdictions you're operating, and that become really critical considerations for companies. So having this built into you know, kind of a center of excellence so that you know that you're channeling this in the right way in, in companies, I think is critical for the stage of development uh, that we're uh, that we're at right now. So, Paul, giving your purview and, and some of your thesis around the future, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm wondering in your, your realm is when I look at technologies like the cloud, an enterprise corporation is probably best suited for that realization today, right? Like the personal cloud computing, it exists. And, you know, I think the strongest use case of that is probably video games today. But beyond that, um, it doesn't make that much sense for an individual person or even a small startup to, to endeavor on a very complex cloud implementation. However, I think that might differ given your some of your comments you just uh, specified when it comes to AI. On the AI front, one of the things that we're seeing is corporations that have a lot of technical debt or have a lot of data that hasn't been digitized or have, you know, very complex teams and org charts, they're not well suited because it's going to take them some time to get all these things uh, in, pro in progress in place. Now, on the flip side, they have the most data, so they'll probably have some of the, the stronger AI models. But to, what I, to, the, to make the question that I have here is like, would it make more sense for a startup or even an organization to think about, you know, creating an internal startup and then going after it? I mean, that's what Google did with DeepMind. And I mean, we just saw some of the new news related to DeepMind where they're bringing in uh, Demis and to lead their actual uh, AI practices at Google. And even if there's countless examples where this is also true in the AI industry. Is that the right approach or do you think that that ship has sailed to in a long time ago? For some companies, there's an example, a media organization we're working with that sees an opportunity to really create a whole new part of their business using generative AI. They can use generative AI to create uh, a way to generate coverage for things they couldn't cover before. I can't get too too specific about it. And um, and in that case, that's, that's maybe more of a startup thing. You actually are using generative AI to branch out in a new direction. But we think a lot of the, the a lot of the generative AI potential is going to be in the changing the core of how you work as a company. It's going to transform the way work is done. It's that phrase, you know, we use reimagining work. That's what this is about, which means I think you do need to, to have a lot of capability at the heart of your organization, uh, looking at how you how you do this, how you do and uh, drive the transformation. So um so I think it, it could be a mix for different types of use cases. You know, in some you know, a company may spin out or have a little uh, you know. Uh, separate projects, you know, to pursue some initiatives they're doing, but I think this gets to the core of how companies are operating, which is why you know companies need to embrace it uh, broadly. But another point that you're mentioning is, uh, I do think this that the tech generative AI offers a lot of potential for for new startups and small companies because they can access tremendous capability to build new businesses in addition to the power it gives big businesses. So. I heard people ask, does this, you know, are the big only, you know, big companies only going to get stronger with this or are the, the, the new startups, you know, new companies going to win out? I think it's really a mix here uh, that we'll see going forward because of the power of the models, the power for new organizations to leverage them, as well as, uh, you know, the power that uh, larger organizations have to move faster. Paul, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about investment, technology investment. AI is changing so rapidly, the capabilities are changing, the models are changing, the implications for the enterprise and for society at large remain very unclear. Given this ambiguity, how should, how do you recommend that organizations should be investing? And I will mention that Accenture recently announced a $3 billion investment in this. So obviously it's something that you're giving a lot of thought to. As you said, we announced a $3 billion, B, billion with a B, we don't do that too often, uh, $3 billion investment in, our, in data and artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there's a, a good part of that is for generative AI, but it's across data and artificial intelligence. So we're we're doubling our workforce. We have 40,000 people that work in data and AI today. We do a lot of work in the area. We're going to double that over three years. Uh, we're going to we're developing a new tool called uh, AI uh, Navigator for Enterprise to help companies you know, apply AI more quickly, including generative AI. And the tool itself uses uses generative AI to help companies understand the roadmap they need to to follow and how they. You know, industry by industry, how they can drive value from AI, 
And um, and we, we're creating a center for advanced AI where we're looking not just at generative AI, but the next breakthroughs that will come as uh, as well. So uh, yeah, we're excited about it. We're putting uh, we're putting a lot of uh, money and focus on it because we do believe this is transformational for business, and this will this will uh, this wave will build faster than cloud and faster than some of the other technology waves that we've um, that we've uh, seen before. So yeah, so a big big focus and. Um, and we see companies doing the same. So we did a survey recently, and uh, 97% of executives that we surveyed, this is just a couple of weeks ago, 97% believe this is going to be strategic for their companies, and, and it's going to change their business or their industry. 97%. That's basically everybody. Uh, over 50% believe it's game-changing. You know, Not just change some change, but game-changing for their industry or company. About 46% uh, are going to invest a significant part of their budget in generative AI in the next two years, this is a fast build, and maybe some of this is you know companies getting a little overexcited, but um, uh, but we believe that 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 pattern will hold, and companies will will move and invest in this technology. You know, more, again, more quickly than we've seen other ways of technology build. But what about the risk associated with investing in something where the end trajectory is so unclear? You need to look at the horizon. I think there's a lot of things that that are clear that you can you know, that are clear. And I think the key thing is to look at this from two dimensions: business case dimension and um, a res- the response responsible AI dimension, which helps you balance the risk. The business case helps you look at the value. The responsible AI helps you look at you know applying with the human values and and right risk profile. If you take two, those two lenses, I think you can find the intersection of the right things that you can start on now. With no regrets, and obviously you have to make sure that the use case you look at has, you know, can be supported with the technology that's available today, which is moving super fast. So, so I, I think, I think, Michael, we can, you can uh, identify no regrets things to do. We believe in the near term, this is going to be human in the loop types of solutions for the for the most part. It's going to be solutions that bring in tremendous new capabilities for people. It's going to be, you know, new exciting capabilities for consumers to use, you know, more directly, uh, like. Uh, in, in one case, a retailer we're working with that's using generative AI to create all sorts of uh, new product uh, configuration capability for their customer, uh, for their customers. Um, it's going to create new capability for employees, et cetera. This is all stuff that's doable today. I think with no regrets, without you know really worrying too much about the risk, and you can you can uh, apply the right principles to to do it in a responsible way. From an industry-specific standpoint, it seems like each industry is dealing with AI at at its own speed. Um, the two that I want to bring up right now that have had probably, I would say, some of the most impact is one, education, and two, the legal sector. The funny thing about it is they dealt with this regulation in entirely different ways. In the education sector, everything is pretty much a, a chaotic mess. You know, you have schools... Uh, banning things, turning things off, then re-enabling, and and there's a whole that we could have a whole show on this. But on the legal side, you've got which surprises me the most as a technologist, uh, lawyers really embracing this technology. Um, there's obviously a little resentment, but there's there's legal LLMs, um, and there's a lot of adoption as to how you can integrate it and adopt and 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 make you know your law firm or your practice move faster. I would have never predicted that in a hundred years, but it's happening. Now, on the flip side, Elizabeth Shaw from Twitter has this really good question where a lot of organizations and individuals have begun using generative AI for work without any AI governance in place. And she's wondering how you can apply governance once the horses are out of the barn and racing. Um, the reason why I brought up the, the points earlier is, you know, education, that whole sector is dealing with this, this, this whole dilemma right now. And I'm curious your take, just because you're seeing it on the enterprise side where if I input, you know, an email or contents of a document, there's a true risk there, whether it be IP or trade secrets. Whereas with school, you know, if I put my quiz test, quiz questions and test questions in the program, you know, it, it really only impacts me and, 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 and will have a lasting impact on the, the knowledge that I retain and gain. We're seeing broad adoption across industries, unlike other, any other technology I've seen, which had very specific, everything had specific industry patterns, client server, ERP, uh, mobility, cloud, SaaS, um, had very specific industry patterns. Generative AI is super broad in terms of uh, the industry uh, adoption we're seeing and the industry potential use cases we're seeing. The two you mentioned are, are super interesting, Q. Education, I think, will be 
literally transformed and, and you know through generative AI, it enables truly personalized learning in ways that are significantly different than our current educational system. It'll take a while for that to work through, but yes, it's going to be you know, pervasive and powerful and legal. I agree with you. The interesting thing about the legal profession is it can help paralegals uh, work more effectively and do higher level work, and it can allow experienced lawyers to leverage themselves more effectively in terms of the work they get done. So we're seeing it being adopted across you know the different types of work in uh, in the legal uh, industry or legal profession from that perspective. Um, but I think to the horse out of the barn question, yeah, no, you can you can still apply responsible AI. You can go back through uh, and, and do it. It's a matter of being systematic and rigorous. It's about having C-suite and CEO support. We report on responsible AI to our board. Uh, it's part of our, our formal compliance responsibility um, that we do. And we encourage organizations to do the same. And, and if you already have AI out there, and most organizations do, and most organizations don't have enough responsible AI in place, uh, we believe it's time to do that. Inventory the AI, know where you're using it, understand the risk level, know the mediation techniques and tools and have them at, at your disposal and know if you've mediated the risks. Uh, you have to go back uh, retroactively and do that if you haven't done it so that you know what your baseline is as you start to apply uh, more AI and generative AI going forward. Given the impact of AI, we know that it will be pro it is profound and will be profound. Where is this going? And more importantly, how should businesses position themselves to capitalize on this obvious sea change that's kind of erupting all around us? I think this the simple answer is you need to think big, start small, and scale fast. The think big is think about where this, what the real potential is in where this could you take your organization, where the, the big threats, the big opportunities, that's thinking big. Start small, small as the experiment with the human in the loop and the no regrets use cases, get some experience, understand the models, select the right partners, your models and such, and, and, and do something and get ready to scale fast. This is the centers of excellence, the, uh, the operational maturity that uh, one of the uh, good questions came in on and, and other capabilities and the talent that you built around it to scale fast. So that's a uh, think big, start small, scale fast is uh, the advice I'd give. Is sci-fi has shown us, you know, what the future has looked like. I mean, we see some of the gadgets and gizmos that are real life objects from Star Trek. Uh, we see some of the unforeseen and, and uncomfortable futures from Black Mirror start to arise. One of the things that I'm wondering in your take is, I mean, you wrote the book Human Plus Machine, and then you've got another one since then. I'm, I'm guessing you've been thinking about this whole concept of transhumanism and merging kind of the, the, the brain computer interfaces that Elon talks about with some of these AI models. Like, how, how, how near do you think that is? Or do you think that that is still uh, fodder for science fiction novelists? First of all, I'm a massive fan of science fiction, and I believe most science fiction eventually becomes real. It's a matter of... Uh, the timeline, and uh, if you want to, if you want to read about where technology is going, you pick up you know somebody like a Neil Stevenson and read his books, uh, where he he's anticipating he coined the term metaverse among other things, and his book Fall uh, previewed where we are with technology right now you know, a number of years ago really well. Uh, so science fiction can be incredibly illuminating into where we're going in terms of transhumanism. You know, I'm not a, you know, a real expert per se in that field, but I uh, talk to a lot of uh, friends and colleagues uh, who are, and I, I believe it's quite far away. I mean, think about how blown away we are by large language models today and chat GPT and everything. There is no intelligence inherent in these models. These are, these are, these are statistical models. So people ask me how intelligent these models are. The models have no intelligence. The models are a, a bunch of data with you know, technology that can, you know, that can statistically create results from them. There is, is no inherent knowledge. You know, this, this, some of the breakthroughs we're, we're looking for in AI, the next generations of things like common sense AI, the way knowledge graphs come in and can be combined with generative AI, that starts to create, you know, uh, systems that have more intelligence, uh, you know, inherent uh, in the models, along with the generative capability. And I think that's where you see some interesting advances, but truly getting to the human, uh, you know, human and, and surpassing human level, you know, uh, I think I think we're quite far away from it. Um, and I, we're multiple, you know, multiple of uh, multiple breakthroughs, you know, away from, uh, I believe, from, from seeing that. And I think that discussion, I think, distracts us a little bit from what we need to do today, which is some of the great questions the listeners have asked about human values and ethics and avoid, you know, let's, let's prevent people from using today's technology in bad ways. 
and and avoid getting a little bit too distracted by the things that are that are pretty far down the road. This is from Mike Prest. He's a chief information officer on LinkedIn. He says, as a business leader managing the risks of AI, how do you what advice can you offer on sharing inver information to become good stewards of the technology and dispel some of the dystopian conversations about generative AI? And, and very quickly, please. I think that we should share more. I'm happy to, on that front, I'm happy to you know, connect with anybody and share some ideas. There's some various forums out there where there's a lot of this sharing happening, uh, both in business communities and different technology forums. So I think that's how we'll all get better. It's, it's, it's at the early stages. And I'm uh, I have a lot of forums that I'm running with some of uh, my peers and colleagues and, and other companies to, uh, to to share a lot because we're all learning together in this fast-moving technology. And we have another question from Twitter, another really good one. And, and again, really quickly, please. And this is from James McGovern, who says, with Microsoft and Oracle holding layoffs, the talent for enterprise architecture and sales professionals must be huge. Who's hiring? Enterprise architecture, you know, as much as you need generative AI skills, enterprise architecture is immensely important. Generative AI is creating, and, and the, along with the metaverse capabilities, which we didn't talk about in this, in this call, uh, is, it creates a, really a rethink of your enterprise architecture, what you need to do. So those skills, I think, are in tremendous demand as we look at this going forward. So I think uh, a lot of companies are looking at hiring the right talent to, to build this out. I think enterprise architects in, in particular has been a shortage in the industry for a while and are you know, even, even more in demand as we go forward with uh, every, every new technology like generative AI. Paul, let's shift gears here. You're an avid sailor. I've known you for many years and, and I see you sailing. Tell us why. What do you tell us about your sailing and and why do you like to sail so much? I've sailed uh, my whole life, so it's something uh, that's been a lifelong uh, passion, and um, I find uh, I, I, the, I, I love the experience of it when you're out on the on the water and uh, you're seeing the sunset and you have a nice breeze behind you and you're uh, and you're powered only by the wind and uh, it's sailing along and you can hear the little uh, bubbling under the keel of your boat. As you're uh, as you're moving through the water at a nice pace, there's not a better feeling in the world uh, than that. There's a there's a challenge aspect of it, which is um, which is uh, optimizing. How do you go a little faster? How do you get the sails tuned a little bit better? And I love the intellectual challenge uh, of that. There's a learning aspect. I learned something about. I've been sailing my whole life. I learned something new either <laughs> by making a mistake or just encountering something every single time I'm on the boat. And it's just a continual, uh, continual learning experience. And uh, finally, I just say it's it's my happy place. Uh, you know, the one it's the one place where I really don't think about anything else because, from a safety perspective, and focusing on what what I'm doing on the boat and everything else, when I'm when I'm on my boat, that's that's where I am, and that's where my whole focus in my mind is that I, is on my you know on my boat and the the guests and passengers that I that I have on it. As an author, I'm sure your some of your pastime includes reading. Uh, what books are you reading these days and, and what's keeping you sane? One of my favorite authors and, uh, and heroes is Neil Stevenson, who's wrote so many uh, great uh, uh, science uh, science fiction books. So I'd put him out there. Uh, a great book uh, that I read recently is Cloud, uh, Cloud Atlas, which is a fantastic story that gets into some of the top topics that we talked about. It's a prize winning novel that covers everything from the fall of the uh, Ottoman Empire to uh, to space travel in the future. Uh, in uh, through a series of parallel stories, so it's a very interesting read. There's a book uh, called Reality Plus, which is uh, I'd recommend to anybody anyone that's interested in it. Well, first of all, transhumanism topic you mentioned, the metaverse, uh, or or uh, related topics. Reality Plus is by a philosopher from NYU, who's exploring the question of uh, Are we living in a, a real world or a simulation, and how do you know the difference between the two? It's a fascinating book and super well written. So. Uh, I, re I read a lot, uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, those give you a sense of the, the realm of uh, from fiction to science fiction to uh, you know kind of philosophy as well as technology. You're the senior person for technology at Accenture, which employs about seven hundred and forty thousand people. I mean, just that number in and of itself is almost incomprehensible. How do you spread yourself over seven hundred and forty thousand people and manage the pressure and the expectations? It's an amazing privilege, you know, that, I, that to have a role like this because we, you know, our mission is to uh, 
deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity. And the human ingenuity that we have in those 740,000 people is just amazing. And um, what I what I uh, what I like most about my job is the ability to learn from 740,000 people. I don't talk to each of them individually, but the work that we do for clients, the innovative ideas they come up with is just super inspiring. You know, the ways that they we the, the projects we do in terms of improving communities and society through some of the work we do. So um so it's uh, it's really a privilege to, to to do it and I'm just honored to have the role and to and to represent um uh represent the, the, the amazing group of people that we have and the amazing leadership uh that we have and you know it it I want it sounds it is a big company it's a lot of people but it's uh, it's a lot of small communities that come together with a common culture is the way to think about is the way to think about it and we under, we have the the system we know how to hire you know people in volume if we need to we we know um we know how to uh, we build community and build culture in our organization in a lot of different ways. So some things, um, you know, as you scale up and get bigger, some things aren't that much harder to do at bigger scale and uh, ended up scaling you know, very well as you grow. And that's what I've, you know, what I've found is we've grown the organization. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And it, again, it's just a, a privilege to you know be, be in an organization like this and have the role that I have. What's the hardest part? I don't know all the 740,000 names, but I'm working my way through as best I can. Hey, Paul, question for you regarding uh, just being a techie. What's your favorite device? Probably apps that I use. So what, what are the, one of the devices I'm really getting a kick out of is my Aura Ring. Um, not really marketing for a specific product, but it's a um, simple device. It's the Ring. It's connected to the app on the phone. And I'm finding it's really helping me understand some patterns on how I can be a little healthier and happier and get better sleep and such. You can track and I can track and correlate my heart rate, my oxygenation, uh, my breathing patterns, all sorts of things. And uh, compared to my sleep activity, compared to my sleep cycle, compared to my activity cycle. And it's it, we're data driven, you know, and if you get better data, you can improve uh, patterns and such. That's one of my one of the things I'm playing around with uh, right now that I'm, I'm getting uh, getting a lot of value out of. So one of the things that's interesting about the aura ring is it represents like the whole quantified self movement. So you now right. have your own personal database of data that you can do whatever you want with. Are you going to build anything using your health data or is this just a, a personal experience? I don't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm on that exact journey you mentioned. I'm starting with now the bio, the personal bio, understanding that your bio more using the you know the, the self you know diagnostics you can, which has this is another big impact on on uh, on. Uh, you know, kind of health and wellness. So yeah, I've been trying to get more and more kind of data driven and understanding, you know, kind of what uh, what what makes me work and what makes me uh, healthy or not. So yeah, that's uh, that is something I'm going to continue doing. It's funny because that's the big data that comes off of your body, and then you take that what works for you and, and implement that at the enterprise at scale. I see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, and with that, we are out of time. A huge thank you to. Paul Doherty. He's the chief executive for Accenture Technology. Paul, thank you for coming back again to CXO Talk. We really, really do appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Michael. And it's great to do this with, with Q as well. So thanks, thanks to you both. And to the audience, for, those are amazing questions. I wish I could be there and ask the audience a lot of questions as well, but it's, a, it's been a great experience. Thank you. And Q Harrison, it's great to see you. And, and thank you for being such a great co-host. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it, Q? Indeed, man. Thank you for having me. Everybody, thank you for watching. And as Paul said, you guys are an amazing audience. Before you go, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out CXOTalk.com, and we will see you again next time. We have amazing, really great shows coming up. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>